morning, everyone. Perhaps you were expecting Pastor Brian. He's right here. <laughs> it's good to have you back, Brian, and all the team. Last week, uh, someone said that uh, I had not introduced myself, so I apologize for that. For those of you that don't know, I'm Gary Miller. I've been a member of the Board of Elders here in the past, and um, it's a pleasure to bring you the message from God's Word today. I have to admit that I really have been wrestling with how to begin this passage. Um, in past times, you know that I usually have other people read uh, the Scripture for us before uh, we get into it, but this passage has taken me weeks and weeks of preparation to the point of actually being able to understand how best to address the issues that Malachi presents to us and here, what represents not only his final words, but the final words of the Old Testament. So we have to ask ourselves, what does God really want us to understand about this very special message? So I came to the conclusion that the best way to begin is actually to read it together. So I need you to open up your Bibles to the book of Malachi. Hopefully you're there already. This is the last chapter of the last book in the Old Testament. And we're going to begin reading the entire chapter, all six verses. Let's begin in verse 1. Malachi chapter 4. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace. And all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. And you will tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Uh, just a side note, Horeb is actually Mount Sinai. Verse 5, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. Well, I don't know about you, but as I read that passage several weeks ago, it seemed a bit confusing. So uh, clearly there are some phrases here, especially in the first two verses that kind of uh, stand out to me. And I thought we'd just take another look at them. We have them up here. I mean, the day is coming burning like a furnace. Uh, obviously, that's not today, right? I mean, not, we don't have that going on. Uh, all the arrogant and every evildoer will be set ablaze. And then next, you who fear my name will rise with healing in its wings. And again, you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. And again, they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. 
And then that's only in the first two verses, or first three verses. And after that, then, uh, we have to ask, who is this guy, Elijah, who will come before the great and terrible day of the Lord? Well, we'll get to that in just a little bit. So, obviously, what Malachi is doing here is he's presenting some significant prophecy. In fact, this chapter has a couple of parallel passages in the book of Zephaniah and in the book of Revelation, which we'll get to in a bit. So in order to understand how this book ends, uh, we got to spend some time just kind of evaluating the prophecy that God is presenting. But before I go very much further, uh, I have a little caveat. I think it's actually dangerous for a literalist like me to speak about prophecy. <laughs> you see, uh, when you talk about prophecy, there's many, many symbols, uh, many symbolic images, symbolic events, and they're mixed together with real events that, frankly, I have to admit I'm treading on thin ice. So stay with me, and I, I pray. Don't get upset if my views are a bit different from yours. I'm really just trying to do the best I can as God has led me to understand. But as we begin, let's do a quick recap. I think it's really important that as we come to the end of this book that we look back and see what led us up to this point. So uh, remember that Malachi represents the last writing of the writing prophets in the Old Testament. And his words, which we know are inspired by God, were a bit strident concerning the way the people of Israel were living, the ones that came back from the captivity in Babylon. Uh, let's put it in the context here. Uh, remember now, they, the people had returned from the captivity in Babylon with the blessing of King Cyrus of Persia. You would find that if you read the book of Ezra chapter 1. But another group returned to Jerusalem later, and they rebuilt the city walls under the leadership of Nehemiah. So trying to understand Malachi, we have to place it in between the construction of the temple under Ezra and the rebuilding of the wall under Nehemiah. We understand this best when we remember that the priests were offering sacrifices to God and they wouldn't do that without a temple. So Malachi's words to the Israelites were really quite stinging. And just to remind ourselves, uh, we've placed them up here. Uh, first of all, we remember that the priests were offering sacrifices that weren't acceptable. Some of the sacrifices were lame and sick and the food was spoiled. And that certainly was, was not in the way that God approached it. The people profaned the temple through many bad marriages. We understand that their families were not honoring to God. There was also rampant sin among the people themselves. And we learned a couple of weeks ago that the people had robbed God of tithes and offerings. And last week we spoke about the fact that uh, they treated God arrogantly and they had absolutely no joy in their worship. They, they just showed up. And we learned last week that that's an insufficient way to worship God. Well, for these offenses, we know that God would judge the people. 
However, uh, we were reminded last week that there were also another group of people. There weren't just these people who were joyless in their worship, that there was another group who remained faithful to God, and their worship was genuine, and it, God would reward that worship. So, after all of this reflection, how, how does God end the book? Well, he ends the book with prophecy. You see, God is closing the curtains of the words from the Old Testament, but he's opening up a window of prophecy, helping us to look into the future. So that's what we're going to look at today. The first one is the day of the Lord. Well, we need to understand that, first of all, this passage, this passage here is intended for Israel and not the church. And I believe too many people get this wrong. Now, if you read commentaries, and I read plenty of them, you'll find that um, there's many different views on this. But we need to remain within the context of this book to fully understand Malachi's words were meant for the returning remnant from the captivity. However, as we'll find out, there are some interesting parallels for us to understand as well. So what is this day of the Lord? Well, it refers to a specific time when Jesus returns to the earth, but this time he will bring judgment. Now, I want us to understand, this is not the time when Jesus comes back to uh, catch up his bride, the church, into heaven. Uh, Paul writes about that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. No, this is not that time. This is a second time when Jesus comes back, and he referenced this, this in the book of Zephaniah. So we're going to turn there. Now let me tell you how easy it is to get to Zephaniah. If you're in Malachi, just go to the left. You're going to run into the book of Zechariah, and then you'll run into the book of Haggai, and next is Zephaniah. Let's turn to Zephaniah, just a few pages back. And here we need to look beginning in verse 14. He talks about the day of the Lord. And uh, let me read it for us together. Near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord, in it the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. And I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath. And all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one of all the inhabitants of the earth. Oh my goodness, that's tough reading. I mean, you know, we're talking about wrath, trouble, distress, Destruction, desolation, darkness, gloom, clouds, thick darkness. Uh, people are going to be blind. Their blood is going to be poured out. 
I don't want to be here during that time, and I don't think you do either. Well, Zephaniah isn't the only one to talk about this day. It's also referred to in the book of Revelation, the very last book of the entire Bible, and it's described as the outcome of the seven bowls of wrath. Uh, We'll turn there in a little bit. You see, God describes the carnage that will encompass the earth as he brings final judgment upon sinful mankind. Just how bad will it be? Well, let me just pull out a few descriptions, a little different from what we read in Zephaniah. These show up in Revelation chapter 16. We have them here for you. Uh, Malignant sores will break out on those who have the mark of the beast. Uh, Every living thing in the sea will die. It goes on. Uh, People will be scorched by fierce heat. And get this, hailstones that weigh 100 pounds each will fall on all people. Well, uh, as we reflect on what Malachi says here in chapter 4, verse 1, he refers to this day as burning like a furnace. Now, Again, we have to understand that this is not the fire that it talks about in Malachi chapter 3, verse 2. We talked about that a few weeks ago when Pastor Brian spoke. He, he talked about that being a refining fire. No, this day is the furnace that represents God's judgment upon the earth, and it consumes all of the people who are arrogant and evil. They will be consumed, as Malachi says, even down to the roots. And when you burn the roots of a plant, uh, there is no more hope. And that's what God is presenting here. But during all of this suffering, I I just love this about the word of God. Uh, We still see that there's a remnant of people who fear his name. It says these people will rise with healing on its wings. They will even express their joy like calves being led out of the stable. But these faithful ones will also then be able to triumph over those wicked people who were being judged by God. This remnant is really consistent with those people that we talked about last week in Malachi chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. So how does this prophecy begin? It begins with great judgment upon those who do not fear God. And as it's described in Revelation It's going to be a terrible day. But in all of this, I love the fact that God continues to call his people back to him. He offers a ray of hope. Notice in verse 4 that God calls the people back to him through a remembrance of the law of Moses. Let's look at it. It says, remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all of Israel. Well, of course, uh, the statement refocuses our attention on the fact that this passage is meant for Israel because Israel was given the law from God through Moses. And today, there's way too many people think that the Old Testament isn't important anymore, that it represents the law and we're under grace But we have to remember that even the law pointed us 
to his son, Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, uh, Jesus spoke about this. Uh, Here it is. It's in Matthew 5, uh, verse 17. At least I think it is. There it is. Uh, Do not think, and this is Jesus speaking, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. No, I, I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. So, you see, God is reminding his people to look at, back at the law, to look at the statutes of Moses, because why? They are representations of his son who would become the ultimate sacrifice for their and our sins. You see, it seems clear that many of the returning Israelites had forgotten the promises that God had stipulated in the law and the prophets. They certainly had the documents that supported that there would be a coming Messiah. They even had the festivals. They had the rituals that identified a king who would one day free them from bondage. And here in Malachi 4, we observe this loving character of God who's what? Gently reminding his people that there is hope, even in the midst of great suffering, but they need to turn to him. Well, I think it's time to uh, uncover who Elijah the prophet is. I mean, he spoke about him here, right here in verse 5. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet. You see, God not only provides a message of hope, but he provides a messenger of hope. Again, we cannot confuse this with what was written earlier in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. There he speaks about a messenger who would come and clear the way before me. Perhaps you remember uh, Pastor Brian teaching us about this, and we learned that this was a reference to John the baptizer who really paved the way for Jesus Messiah. John identified Jesus this way as he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who what? Who takes away the sin of the world. So, if uh, Malachi is not representing John the baptizer here, who is this guy? Well, this is the place where it's up for a lot of debate. Um, In order to understand this, I read four different commentaries, and I received five different opinions. Uh, I even had a sit-down conversation uh, with uh, Pastor Jeff, and uh, the great thing was we agreed. We have to begin to understand who this person is in light of uh, Jesus' testimony about Elijah in Matthew chapter 17. Now, maybe you would remember that in Matthew chapter 17, this is the passage where he writes about what is known as the transfiguration of Jesus. And during that transfiguration, uh, you may remember that both Moses and Elijah were present. Well, in that passage, after Moses and Elijah um, leave, Jesus explains that Elijah is coming and will restore all things. That's in uh, verse 11. From Malachi's prophecy and Jesus' words, it's clear that there will be a day, at least it's clear to this literalist, when Elijah returns. And we can best understand this by turning to Revelation chapter 11. So, all the way back to Revelation, and we're going to be in chapter 
11. We understand uh, that Revelation is the book of revelations that were given to the Apostle John when he was uh, exiled on the island of Patmos. Well, here in Revelation, uh, verse 3, we see um, the uh, introduction of what is known as the two witnesses. And these witnesses, let's look at verse 3. And I will grant, that's God saying, I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. Okay, so what is this? Well, there will be 1260 days, 42 weeks, six months, when they will be testifying to the world about Jesus and about God. This is during the Great Tribulation. When their time of testifying is finished, they will then be killed by Satan. He's regarded here in Revelation 11 as the beast. Their dead bodies will then lie in the street for three and a half days. Then God will raise them from the dead and return them to heaven. And lest you think I'm just making all of this stuff up, let's look at verses 11 and 12. And here we read, and after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them. That's the two witnesses who were dead. And they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who were, who were beholding them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up into heaven in the cloud, and their enemies beheld them. Okay. So I've got to explain to you how I landed on the fact that this is truly Elijah that has come as one of the witnesses. Well, if you read this entire chapter, uh, and it's kind of sobering to read it, we notice a reference in verse 5 that fire proceeds out of their mouths. That's talking to the two witnesses. And a little bit later in verse 6, we read these words. These have the power to shut up the sky in order that rain may not fall. Well, you may remember, this is very compelling, that this is an obvious reference to Elijah, who at one point called upon God to shut up the rain, and it didn't rain for years. And when he went to Mount Carmel, uh, to um, go against the prophets of Baal, he prayed and God brought fire from heaven that consumed the entire altar. And later, they killed the prophets of Baal. But there's another important reference here that we have to look at when it says that these two witnesses have the power over the waters to turn them into blood. You may remember the story about Moses, uh, that he, God gave him that power during the 10 plagues of Egypt. Okay, so that's why I landed there. But now I come to the point and say, why is this important? What difference does it make? Well, there are two things that I think are important about this. First, we need to gain an appreciation of what I call the consistency of Scripture. Remember that Malachi wrote his book approximately 400 years before Jesus was born. 
And we also know that John received his revelation from God anywhere between 70 and 95 AD. Now, again, it depends which scholar you read to determine whether it was 70 or whether it was 95. Either way, this means that Malachi's prophecy was written about 500 years before the apostle John wrote these words in Revelation. So I believe that that points us to the fact that we can rely upon Scripture. It's accurate, it's dependable when it reports truth, and it's accurate and dependable when it reports prophecy. But secondly, I think we see a part of God's character, his character that remains unchangeable. Now, we have learned throughout Scripture, those of us who have been around a while, that uh, God has many aspects to his character. We know that God is faithful, that God is merciful and provides us with much grace. We remember that God's character includes holiness and his love, and this is just to name a few. But we also have to remember that if we accept God's character for all of these good things, we have to accept the fact that God's character includes that he is a righteous judge. And one day, one day, his judgment will bring doom to all those people who reject him and who reject his son. And so Malachi affirms that in his prophecy as we have read it here. But what must this prophet Elijah bring during this great and terrible day of the Lord? Well, uh, I'm just going to refer to it. Stay in Revelation right now. But back in Malachi 4.6, he says that Elijah will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Well, I think in order to understand this, we have to go all the way back to the book of Genesis and look at the Abrahamic covenant once again. In Genesis chapter 17, it, it's, it's here where we learn that God affirms his covenant with Abraham in a very special way. So let's look at it. Genesis 17, 7. God is speaking to Abraham. He says, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I want you to notice the word. This is an everlasting covenant to Abraham and his descendants. And as we know, his, we are part of that as the body of Christ. In other words, for all eternity, God will uphold his covenant with Abraham's seed. Now, I'm focusing now just on those from Israel. Let me show you. You're in Revelation, right? Go back a couple of pages to Revelation. In my Bible, it's just one page. Revelation 7. Revelation chapter 7. Here he talks about a special group of people. And in verse 4, Revelation 7, verse 4. He says, And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 100 and 44,000 who were sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Yes, uh, even during the great tribulation, God will restore a remnant from Israel 
who will recognize Jesus as Messiah. And they will do this because of the testimony of those two witnesses that we spoke about earlier. And when that happens, these people then will be restored into this relationship with God as he established way back in Genesis through the Abrahamic covenant. I love the fact that under Elijah's ministry, that unity will once again come to the people of Israel. It will come with those who had accepted Jesus as Messiah. We, today we call them Messianic Jews before the Great Tribulation. They are even existing today. But as Malachi wrote, it will also turn the hearts of those who we noted here from the book of Revelation who have turned to him during the Great Tribulation. It's going to be a great joyous reunion. And it's a reunion of fulfillment of prophecy as God once again unites his chosen people under the atoning sacrifice of his son. Now, notice that the final words of the Old Testament end with a warning. I read an interesting fact about this that says um, when rabbis teach this portion of scripture, they never end with the final verse. They always go back and read verse 5 as the final verse because they don't like what it says. Well, what does it say? Well, it says, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. I mean, who wants to end the Old Testament with a curse? Uh, well, the, this word curse means utter destruction. And I believe that what God is giving here is a stern warning that one day God will indeed judge Israel for their disobedience. But these words also set the stage for the coming of the Messiah who, who comes in the New Testament time. He, he's going to challenge these religious leaders with truth and righteousness. And he's going to provide the final sacrifice for the sins of the world. Well, uh, if you've been around uh, any time when I'm teaching, you know I have to ask this question. Uh, so what do we take away from this prophecy? It seems challenging to believe that God would end the Old Testament with such a dire set of words. It causes me to shudder as we consider these last days. However, I believe the message that we have here from Malachi chapter 4, it's consistent with two significant aspects of the Old Testament, this Old Testament teaching that leads us into New Testament preaching. So the first are warnings. Yep, you, you can't read the Old Testament without understanding that God is warning Israel, and of course we can take some of those warnings on ourselves to remain faithful to God, not only for our behaviors, as we learned here in Malachi. Their behaviors were seemingly right, but also their motives. You see, we've learned throughout many stories in the Old Testament that uh, God has called his people to do what? To set themselves apart, to live holy lives, um, to be set apart for his purposes. Uh, look, the earliest warning that was given to mankind was in Eden. You remember that? God warned them, Adam and Eve, not to eat of one tree, one tree only. He warned them. But uh, 
God also warned them about worshiping other gods. Uh, for example, I've got one here in Deuteronomy chapter 6. In warning the people about worshiping idols, he says, For the Lord your God is a jealous God, and he will bring his anger upon you. But lest we think that warnings are only found in the Old Testament, we also have to open up the New Testament and look at some warnings that are given there for us as well. Uh, Jesus himself gives a warning, uh, many of them, but here's one from Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Uh, the Apostle Paul wrote many warnings to the churches uh, throughout uh, Asia Minor. And he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Well, we all get the warning message that's coming about there. So what is the purpose of God's warnings? I mean, why would God provide us with so many cautions? Cautions about how we're to live what we should avoid, how we are to worship. Well, I believe the warnings are really a gift from God. You see, he warns us of dangers that we need to be aware of precisely because he loves us. You see, a father disciplines, he, he warns his child or his children when they're in danger. Why? He doesn't want them to become harmed or sometimes he wants them to be aware of future dangerous encounters. Uh, Solomon, uh, one of the wisest men to walk the earth, um, not quite as wise as Jesus, but he wrote these words. He said, my son, do not reject the discipline or warnings of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, he warns them, even as a father, the son in whom he delights. So when God is warning his people, the Israelites specifically from the words of Malachi, he's attempting to draw them back to himself. Just as God proclaimed his love for them in chapter 1, verse 2, that, that's how Pastor Brian started this whole series out. He now expresses them love through a different means, through a warning of the last days. You see, God is truly loving and gracious because he uses his words. He uses people. He uses events in our lives in an effort to draw us back into a loving relationship with him. We should be thankful and very grateful for God's warnings. I know it's happened in my life where God has allowed things in my life to shake me and to bring me back into a closer, deeper relationship with him. But there's another important message, and I don't want us to miss it. It's a message of hope, and we find them here in the words of the Old Testament. God establishes a sense of hope when he states that restoration will occur. We read this in chapter 4, verse 6. You see, God's plan for all of his children is complete restoration. And that restoration happens not only with him, but also with each other. Hope is a theme that runs throughout 
both the Old and the New Testaments. But there are so many verses, I could only choose three. And I chose three that I thought were really important to me and I hope will be important to you in your life when you think about hope. The first is found in 1 Peter chapter 1. Here we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Born again to what? A living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Well, Paul writes about this extensively. And so I chose a couple of verses here. Uh, one from Romans chapter 8, verse 24 and 25. Here he states, for in this hope we are saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And then a little bit later, in Romans chapter 15, Paul writes these words. May the God of hope fill you with all joy. You see, hope brings joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. You see, God closes the Old Testament with a, a message that is filled with hope. And hope points us to the only true hope for our lives. And that only true hope is found in Jesus Christ, his son. This hope is eternal, and it not only provides everlasting life, but I believe that it shows us a way for what I have called a vibrant life of hope here on earth, and it fills us with joy, not only happiness, but joy and peace. So I want to close by asking this question. What do you need today? Maybe you're in one of these two camps. Maybe God is warning you about something today. He's, he's brought things into your life that is calling your attention that you need to be obedient to him. Maybe you're in a passage of suffering or pain. Perhaps God is warning you. He's attempting through that warning to draw you into a deep and loving relationship with him. So I'm going to say you, you need to heed God's warning. If there's sin, you need to repent of your sin and you need to return to a righteous lifestyle. But just as the Old Testament closes with a statement of hope, others here may need to hear that. Perhaps you're challenged by circumstances today that make you afraid, maybe even depressed. I need to remind you that God has promised to bring hope into your life. You can claim that promise today. It, it doesn't take much. You can place your entire life in his control and claim Jesus as Lord and Savior, not in a salvation way, but in a restorative way. And then, as God has promised, his peace and his joy will fill you with his hope. It's going to diminish your angst, and bring lasting peace to your troubled soul. We're going to give you a time in just a bit 
to be able to come up and pray with some of our people. Don't delay. Whether God is offering you a warning or whether he's offering you a ray of hope, our people are here to pray with you, to help you on your journey. Let's begin that with a prayer right now. Father God, as we have opened your word and found some challenging things there, we, we recognize that we not only need to hear your warnings, but we need to embrace the hope that you have given to each of us. We're, we're grateful, God. We're grateful for the gift of your warnings and we're grateful for the gift of your hope, both given to us in the time of our special need. So we thank you, God, and we pray, I pray right now that you would do your part in restoration just as you have promised and that people would respond today to the Holy Spirit who is prompting them, even now, God, we ask that from this prompting, people would find joy, peace, holiness and righteousness that they had never known before so that the name of Jesus will be glorified and praised. We ask this in his precious name, amen.